0: Welcome to Ink's The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times best-selling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, meet Ali Webb, and Michael Endow, the sibling duo behind Dry Bar, the premier blowout salons that are all over the country. They started their first salon in 2010 with the motto, no cuts, no color, just blow out. And now they have over 100 salons nationwide. Ali is a professional hairstylist has a long list of accolades, including Fortune's 40 Under 40, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. Before Drybar, Michael's career spanned numerous management roles, including VP of Brand Marketing at Yahoo. Most importantly, they're dear friends. They're wonderful people. Let's welcome Ali and Michael. Hey, guys. How's it going?
1: Hey, how are you? Thanks for having us. It's
0: thrilled to have you. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. For everybody that's out there listening, you guys have such a cool story. You're siblings. You've created this cult following, especially for people like me who love to have somebody do my hair. Give us just the sense in your own words. How'd you start Dry Bar? Give us the story of you kicking it off.
2: Well, the whole thing really started because I have naturally curly hair and have been on like a lifelong hunt to try to figure out how to blow out my hair and just... You know, loved doing hair. It was always my passion. Took me a long time to get to going to beauty school and and doing this as a profession. And then, you know, fast forward to getting married, being a stay-at-home mom, uh, and then I started a mobile blow dry business. Now I had been doing hair for you know ten years or so. Just really wasn't actually making much money. I was charging only forty dollars to go to women's home, and just felt like during that time I realized there was a pretty massive hole in the marketplace. There was no place for women to go for a great blowout at an affordable price, and I was only charging forty in my mobile business. And just thought that why doesn't something like this exist? Something that as a kid I would have I dreamt about and would have loved. And I felt like you know, at least with my little mobile blow-dry business, I could potentially turn it into a brick and mortar, which is when I went to Michael and said, hey, you know, I'm having a little bit of success in my mobile business. There's a lot of demand. I'm at the point where I kind of can't handle all the demand. Do I turn it into a brick and mortar, hire more stylists mobily? You know, and then Michael you know, kind of thought it was an interesting idea. And, you know, was willing to kind of help me get this off the ground.
0: Michael, I want to turn to you. How did you decide to join your sister? What was the moment when you were like, all right, we can work together? And and, and give us a little bit of the thought process. Had you guys worked together before? Did you know it was going to work? Did you think you guys would kill each other? Just for everybody out there listening that is maybe starting a, a business with their siblings or already has or with their spouse, give us a sense of your thought process.
1: Sure. Well, we did actually work together in a previous life when we were in our early 20s and we nearly did kill each other. Um, and <laughs> we've always been friends and Super Bowls. Cool. So when, you know, our parents thought we were absolutely out of our mind to be doing this again, because they didn't want us to ruin our friendship. But we knew that what we learned about making the mistakes the first time and what buttons we couldn't push and what lines not to cross, we felt and we had like a kind of come to Jesus conversation about mostly Ali telling me like, I can't, be a bad big brother, but you know, outside of that, I so we, I we were a little trepidatious about working together, given what we've been through. But we had matured and grown so much that we felt good about that. But I have to tell you, I was a pretty big skeptic of this business. I thought. You know, I wish I I had the insight to know this was going to be a massive business that it turned into. But at the time, I really just wanted my little sister to have a job and a career. And this store in Brentwood was going to be that. It wasn't until – and to tell you the truth, when we opened the first store and it was super successful, I thought it was because the women of Brentwood had too much time, too much money, and cared too much about their appearance. And Allie had the vision to know that she felt like this could work anywhere. And I was not a believer. And so, in fact, we did our second city, which was Dallas. And she's like, see, it works outside of L.A. And I was like, well, the women of Dallas have too much time. (laughs)
2: Yeah, there was always this, like, Michael kept saying to me, I feel like the first five years of our business, it was like, you have to prove the concept. We have to prove the concept. I'm like, I'm telling you the concept is proven, but it was like trying to go in different states where maybe women didn't love blowouts as much as they did in L.A. and Dallas, so.
0: Well, Michael, if it makes you feel better, I have zero time and you know I'm average when I care about my appearance and I really love dry bar. Um, so <laughs> I was the opposite to the woman in Brentwood. As you guys were thinking about um, kicking off the business and you decided to just focus on blowouts, walk through just literally what was the business um, model that was kind of going through your head when you said, let's just stick to this court of just blowouts?
2: Well, I'll let Michael answer a little bit more. Because he was the one who was putting the Excel spreadsheets together back then when I was just, you know, I had the vision for this. But I, you know, we really didn't. Well, there really wasn't much of a business. There wasn't a business plan in the beginning. And I, you know, in my mind, I was like, if we can do 30 or 40 blowouts a day, maybe this is a viable business, you know. And then that's when I asked Michael to come in and and really look at this and say, like, hey, does this actually work? And I remember those early conversations with Michael and him saying, like, why don't we do cotton color too? Because it seems like there's more money there. Or, you know, why don't we charge people? historically hair salons will charge more for curling irons and flat irons and like the add-ons and extras and I remember so vividly having this conversation and saying I don't want to upcharge for anything I want to charge everybody the same price and if you have long hair or short hair it will all kind of come out in the wash and that was what I really wanted for the business and-,
1: and and your instincts were right and you know we talk a lot about now and our our north star became focusing on one thing and be the best at it and we hear, heard from our customers especially in those early days that it was such a relief to come into a place and not be overwhelmed with a million choices and a huge laundry list of items. And so in every single investor, we've raised over $70 million and we have some of the best now institutional investors. And without exception, there's never been one investor that hasn't pounded the table about us doing other services, offering something else. And ultimately, they come to understand why we have been so vigilant about focusing on one thing. We talk and we say a lot that uh, In-N-Out could probably sell a lot of chicken sandwiches, but they you know, they just sell burgers because that they, they know it works, and their customers appreciate it.
0: We're all nodding. We do. We totally, as a customer, <laughs> appreciate it. So, walk through those early days. You stand up the store in Brentwood. Then, what happened?
1: Well, it, gosh, it's pretty funny because Allie was running that shop, and it was one of the smallest shops we've ever opened. And we quickly realized that we were thrown in the deep end of the pool without. <laughs> float.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember that Michael didn't want me to bring on too many stylists. That shop was eight chairs, and I think I had six stylists working that first day, the first week. And so I was then in the first chair doing blowouts, making sure the front desk was being run, trying to run the shop. I mean, it, it could not have been any more like crazy and chaotic. I mean, people were lining up. We were having to tell people no. We, we were so underprepared for what came and the response of the, this, how this resonated with women.
1: I remember so vividly Ali saying to me one day, like, we've got – we were all, like, all hands on deck. My wife, Allie's then husband, and we were there every day, every night. We were literally – at the store at the end of the night with like cash on the money. table trying to figure out like how to close out our our system and like it was it was actually such a major feat just to get the store closed and to get ready and cleaned up and get ready for the next day and that was just like spin repeat over and over and over again until ally finally said like you got to go find another location like we, we were so in the weeds and so that's when I did. I get, went out and found us two new locations, and we sort of were forced to mobilize out of that little shop, and it was like I say five-year-olds playing soccer. Like We, we had no idea what we were doing. We just muscled through it in those early days, and it wasn't until – I think we had three shops open and we literally had a one bedroom apartment behind the Brentwood shop that my wife and I would drive up from Orange County, sleep there. Our employees would come there and Allie would walk over to do payroll. And that's where like our office was. And it wasn't finally until the third store and we're like, okay, we got to get a real office and, and start running this like a real business. And, Yeah, we just didn't know. We
0: didn't know it was going to turn into what it did. Um, Michael, I want to lean into something you just talked about, which is that like real muscling through it. And I know that term really well from my early days at LearnBass where you kind of just, you like set to figure it out. But when you think of muscling through it, for everybody out there that's like, man, you guys raised $70 million, 100 stores, a household name. A brand that gets dropped all the time as, you know, a brand that people love and admire. You have products. You now have equipment. I mean, you have all these amazing things. When you talk through muscling through it, just remind people of the grit. Like, give us a few tangible yeah. examples of what muscling through it looks, looks like. Right,
1: so- there, there's like a thousand little things that have to happen every single day to start a business and you. a lot of it is so not glamorous. It's staying on hold with the electric company, it's you know finding towel services, it's finding cleaning services and, and there's just nobody to do all that stuff and there, there's an endless list of those little things that need to be done and you just have to put your head down and just bang them out day after day after day. It's tedious, it's monotonous, it's hard, it's frustrating. You wanna, if I had any hair, I'd pull it out. And it is like, the you cut your teeth in those days. It's just, there's no one to staff it out to. There's no money, and you just have to get all, and it's it's overwhelming. It is literally overwhelming to try to figure out, you, you know, you, you're up late at night. I mean, and at the time, in the early days, we still we still had our, our other jobs. So was, this was a side hustle, but even after we had, I think it was seven stores where the wheels were starting to come off and we knew we had to go hire people that really knew what they were doing. And, and it was one of our investors, who's a good friend of mine, who was like, Pulled me aside and he's like, You gotta go find a COO that can run this business and knows what they're doing. And we ended up finding somebody who was like way, way too overqualified. I mean, she was someone who was at Taco Bell and was the president of Pinkberry and was, I mean, we were seven stores. She would open 70 stores a year for the for Taco Bell. But we would have never been so presumptuous to think that we could hire her. (laughs) We tried to get her to be an advisor and she we reached out to her cold. It turned out that she has three daughters, they love the brand, and she was really curious. And we sat down and had lunch and after that lunch she understood how big of an opportunity this was it was a big deal for her to leave her big high-paying corporate job to come to dry bar. but she did it and, and man it was like such a game changer because all of a sudden you realize all of the things that you didn't even know that you didn't know <laughs> because there was someone in there who knew that you needed this person to do operations and you needed this person. Like we just didn't know the questions to ask, the things to do because we had never done it before. That was a really seminal game changing moment for us and we talk about it all the time how you have to hire, you know, it, it it was hard for me because we were gonna pay this person several hundred thousand dollars when we were paying ourselves like, you know,
0: a dollar. Okay. So. so seven stores are up. You're like, the wheels are coming off. It's now a full time job. You hire a very legitimate COO. Then what happens?
1: Then we raise money. That was the beginning of the never ending process of raising capital. And that was, you know. I know for a fact we wouldn't have been able to raise the money that we did had we not hired her. But we went out. We were very fortunate that there was, you know, a lot of interest from private equity. And uh, you know, Allie was a little uncomfortable with the concept. I, we have to tell the story over and over of like owning a smaller piece of a bigger pie, rather than owning a bigger piece of a smaller pie. But I think after we, well, the biggest game changer at that point was we had been approached by inbound equity all the time, and we got very close to doing a deal, and our lawyer, who's one of our biggest franchise partners in Dallas now, he actually wrote me this Jerry Maguire letter like a week before we were supposed to close this deal, begging me not to do it because he didn't think it was the right deal. And, you know, we needed the money. We wanted the money. We were ready to grow. But, you know, I I heeded his wisdom and, and tapped the brakes. And it was a phone call out of the blue that I got from an investment banker by the name of Janica Lane who's now at Piper Jaffreys. And she and I hit it off. She like held my hand through this process, explained to me, you know, how much different the process could be if, if they ran it. Anyway, we hired them and it was like night and day in terms of the investors that they started to bring to us were people that were truly gonna add value and not just write a check. And that's when we were lucky enough to find Castanea who we ultimately settled on and they, in addition to just writing checks, they really rolled up their sleeves in those early days. They helped us, you know, with process and systems and hiring people and were really in the trenches with us.
0: So now you've got money, you've got, you know, a real operator, you've got seven stores. Ali, I want to come back to you as just the maven of the customer experience what in those early days were you just vigilant about that you were like, guys, no matter what, every single store, when you walk into it, has to do X? Just describe to like where, like the level of precision that you cared about and what you were crazy about. Because I can imagine, you know, even as you talk about it, Michael, I'm like, oh my God, you had to clean the store every night. You had to close the books. You had to make sure everything was back in its place. Everything had been cleaned up. What were you relentless about, Allie, when it came to to your customers? Everything. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's such a laundry list, and I and I think it's you know it's a big part of our success because you know I, I Michael and I you know our parents were entrepreneurs, so we you know we saw how they bent over backwards for customers. So customer service is massive to us. So for me. Even still today, it's hard for me to walk in the stores and not see all the millions of things that are wrong when there's so much right, you know, but I still see things like things that drive me crazy or like if you walk in the store and someone doesn't immediately like at least make eye contact with you and give you like a warm friendly nod that they acknowledge your existence, you know? So that like level of customer service and making people feel like they're really at home and making people feel cared for is the very first thing.
1: I thought you were gonna say the thing that still drives her crazy this day is when a front desk person says, Oh, do I you have, have an, an appointment? What, is it, is oh, my it. God.
2: One of my biggest pet peeves is like some a woman walks in and is at the front desk and the bartender says, which is what we call receptionist, do you have an appointment? I, and to me, I'm like – why else would they be here if they don't have an appointment? Like to me, that shouldn't be the thing that we say to them off out of the gate. It should be like, "Hi, how are you? Welcome to Drybar." Like engage in a in a real conversation versus this very like, transactionary moment that would happen. And it still is a huge pet peeve of mine. But we've gotten a little bit better at that, you know, because that's the thing is like Drybar, even though it feels very high end and you know and glamorous and all of that it's still like mom and pop and we want people to feel really great and that's such a huge part of the whole experience is that we're making your hair look really great which it makes you feel really great on the inside and that's
1: there's all, I mean, literally, we could spend the whole show talking about it because I'm thinking of like – because I, I didn't know anything about hair, but there's so many things. I used to think that it's just giving a blowout with, you know, brushing and blow-drying someone's hair. But if you could – I mean, Ali could tell you if, uh, just a handful of them, but there's such a dry – we almost have to – and I watched this in amazement that we had to take stylists who were great and trained, had their cosmetology license, and teach them how to do it, Ali, almost like Oh, re-learn. yeah.
2: We've yeah. 100% trained in industry. I mean, we've, we've trained literally – thousands, probably close to 10,000 stylists over the last 10 years, you know, how to actually style hair. Because as somebody who went to beauty school, you don't actually learn how to style the the way that we want to do hair, that like red carpet, you know, really finished look. And even a lot of hairstylists who were in the industry for years weren't really taught that. So it was backtracking and teaching our stylists that. But to answer your question more, I mean, it's like the customer service is like the huge thing, but then it is like the cleanliness of the store. You know, the, like I have, been Known to walk in stores and start cleaning floorboards. You know, for me, it's like everything stands out as, you know, I feel like, and from a customer perspective, when you're sitting in a space and you notice that, like, you know, the walls look dirty or there's dust everywhere or whatever it is, then you, then I think you, your eye starts going to all the other things that are wrong. And so I, then it becomes a snowball effect. And no, I don't think anybody notices it to the degree that I do. But I feel like when you're in a space that you feel like somebody, Management, whatever is like taking care of it, then you just feel like you're taking care of, is how I've always seen it.
0: You're actually just nailing it. There's been times where I've been in other salons and I've noticed that there's like a water stain that clearly somebody hasn't fixed a wall and it does. It speaks volumes to how much somebody's caring about everything else. You're, you are 100% right. I will say one thing that you'll both be really thrilled about. And the night before I went in, I uh, was going to be induced to have a baby. I took my 4-year-old to Dry Bar with me. Um, so she came with me. And they were like, would your daughter like a blowout? And my daughter, I can barely get her to brush her hair. She was like, can I do one, mommy? It was the cutest thing you've ever seen. They treated her like a princess. They literally, she got her to put her feet up. They And I, I don't think I've ever told you guys this story. She literally had the best time ever. And she was like, mommy, I love going to salons. And forever, I will remember Dry Bar for that like magical moment the day before we had our third child. Just was so special. And they treated us so well. And they didn't even know that I knew you guys. <laughs>
1: it's funny we there's a th- it is a thing that pe- women actually yeah. stopped at dry bar on their way to the hospital which blew my mind the first time i heard it like <laughs> seven years ago i'm like wait what
0: yeah again michael you-, you have no hair so you don't even have to think about these things your life is so much better
2: it's so true so many women get blowouts before birth that should be a tagline <laughs>
0: blowouts before birth yeah you i mean you absolutely Because you pretty much know that for at least many weeks you will not get to think about yourself at all and people are taking your picture so yeah, that's what And with that, we'll be right back after this. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close a round. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to fast forward. So, you finally get to the point where you have 50 stores, you're scaling. When did you have to start thinking about? I mean, you had to start thinking about training uh, an entire SWAT team of people that were going to be in all of your different stores across the country. How did you think about scaling the talent and the people?
1: Well, I mean, that's part of the process that. You know, if even before 50, I would say probably around 30. And by the way, there's 134 now. So, wow, um, but- wow. What we had to do, and training became a massive part of it, and it has had to be systematized. I mean, we have a whole, and it's not even even before you hire them. We, have, we do all of our recruiting internally. There's like a team in our office of probably 20 or 30 people that do nothing but talk to stylists all day long because we hire that centrally. We have, like at any one point, we have like 4,000 stylists working for us, and they're all our employees on purpose, and that's been you know a differentiator for us. They're not independent contractors, and they're not renting chairs. They're part of a family. They get benefits, and it allows... us to attract talent but man i mean we had to hire people who really knew how to put in place training systems and uh and at scale and it's just a massive organization candidly you know in the early days and this was you know sort of a good problem to have but it was still a problem the governor on our growth was less demand from clients but um finding the stylist there are certain cities That stand out, like in the early days in D.C., we were having so much success in our stores in D.C., but we couldn't hire stylists fast enough. It was um, an odd problem to have there because unlike most states, cosmetology license transfer from county to county in D.C. it doesn't. But even in markets like San Francisco, we had a hard time attracting enough talent fast enough to keep up with the demand.
0: That's so interesting. How did you guys, as you started to think about, there were so many people who tried to come after and copycat. How did you think about maintaining your edge that people tried to come in and copy unsuccessfully? But how did you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, in the beginning, it really freaks us out. And in the beginning, I I remember like the there was a weird place that opened down the street and I would like drive by in my car, like with like you know, not trying not to get spotted, not that anybody knew who I was, but you know, just like seeing what the competition was doing. And yeah, I mean a lot I think a lot of people were viewing dry bar and all the success and all the attention and all the press we were getting is like, oh well, yeah, I mean I can hire some stylists and paint some walls and open a dry bar. Like that sounds like a really great business, which yeah, it would from an outsider perspective it does. But I think what gives us our edge and what is really the secret sauce is I mean, a lot of things, but I think a couple of the big things are the fact that, like, for me, it's I'm, I'm a longtime hairstylist. I understand the hair backwards and forwards. So, and it's also part of the reasons that we've stuck to doing one thing and one thing only, because that's the only thing I really know how to do. Um, and so, you know, so the hair itself and the quality of the blowouts. I believe is, is unmatched and unparalleled you know so then and then it's like the customer service of the shops and then it's also the branding you know which Cameron my ex-husband is just a, a branding mastermind and then you put Cameron and Michael together and like magical marketing things happen and you know and then it's like the way the stores look the way you're treated it's you know it's there's a ton of different so many details that I think make us better and I, I you know There's a lot of intangibles. You know, our architect Josh Heitler, who designed the space in such a way where the stylists are comfortable working next to each other, the acoustics, the lighting in the shop. There's all these things that make you feel really comfortable. And I what we've heard over the years is that our clients, when they can't get into dry bar, we go to like a copycat and they're like, yeah, it wasn't great, and they can't really explain why it wasn't great. We know why. You know, we know that all those things that I just mentioned, you know, they, they didn't experience, that nobody really thought of that. So we've always kind of felt like we've ha- we have had this dream team. You know, we were incredibly lucky to all come together at this point in our lives where we all had such different skill sets to making this business you know, really come to life.
1: And just to add to that, you know, exactly, Ali's exactly right. But I used to be so paranoid about answering this question because I, I thought if I told people, you know, what we did that was different, they would go do it. And now fast forward 10 years, it, like, I can't believe they don't. But, you know, back to our parents thinking we were crazy, the amount of money that we spent on this store was absolutely insane. These stores cost over a million dollars to build. And it was because we felt so passionately that the store as and i know you're a foodie but we go to restaurants not just because of the food that they serve but it's the ambiance, it's the sound it's the way it makes you feel to be in that space not just that the food is so great and so we knew innately that that's what we had to create an atmosphere that was luxurious and felt great and so when we see copycats and we see what they they spend a literally a fraction of what we spend to build out our store but it's all those little it's the tufted paneling it's the wood floor it's the marble it's all those things that most people may not know exactly why they like being in dry bar it's the music it's we spend an enormous amount of time energy and money on the music that's and the day parts but it's all those little details and you have to be able to you know spend a lot of money to achieve that and as, as a result you have to do a lot of volume and so it's It's funny because we always get this question from, you know, from the early days is they would come in wondering, oh, this is so, there's no moat around this business. Anyone can come in and do this. And then after they'd spend, you know, a few weeks with us, they'd be like, oh my God, you guys, (laughs) there's no, nobody else can touch this. So it's been very gratifying in that respect.
0: I think also just back to like the small details, the fact that you sit down and you get a menu of all of the different blowouts and the fact that, you know, as a woman, i didn't even know there could be five blowouts until i saw it and then i was like of course that's why i like certain blowouts over others because the details are different and i then became very clear on which blowout i liked as a result and it was again it it is those details so i'm gonna um, shift over to just a few last questions here i want to talk a little bit about you talk about your parents being entrepreneurs and looking at that customer experience. Just tell us a bit more about how you think that shaped your own mindset, being you know, now extremely successful entrepreneurs in your own right. How did watching your parents change your own mindset now that you're on the field and, and in the seats holding the reins?
1: Well, like Ali said, we our parents had clothing stores in South Florida. Wherever there was a retirement community, they had a store called Flips. And we literally grew up sweeping the floors, and, and we would be little kids hanging out under the clothing racks and watching our parents bend over backwards for clients. And, and it was crazy because we just thought that that's the way business worked. I mean these people were putting food on the table. They should be treated a certain way and when we grew up and moved to los angeles we were flabbergasted at how bad customer service was in retail and it was like don't are these people crazy like don't they know that you're giving them money like it was like just bizarre and so that was the first and foremost and also the way we treat people and it was funny Allie, you know she's worked in the salon industry and knows how fragmented and and zany that business can be and she wanted it to be the opposite she wanted it to be a place where people were treated with respect and i remember in the early days our stylists would come to us crying because they'd never with tear happy tears that they'd never worked in a place where people treated them so well We, we didn't think we were doing anything that different we were just following our parents lead and treating our employees and customers the way we wanted to so I mean, now looking back, I think that it's really did shape us. But at the time, we just thought that's the way you yeah, should be. Yeah, we,
2: we had – it's so true. We, it's like we were given this education that we didn't know we were being given at the time. You know, watching our parents was like the greatest gift. I think either one of us could have been given as kids, and we totally took it for granted. But we learned so much from, from watching them.
0: I think um, it's easier to see it than say it. And I think if you can watch it, it is ingrained in you in a way that you'll never be able to – I always – joke my mom was always super frugal because she didn't grow up with a ton of money and I think it just is a value system where you know I, I again I in, those are the things you want to teach your own children so just last few questions for you guys if you fast forward knowing that you're at the helm of thinking about beauty what do you think the beauty industry can look like in 10 years if you had to you know share with us your hypotheses about where the puck is going what does that look like for you guys
2: well interestingly enough and i've i've been asked this a little bit here and there you know i i think that like with all things like fashion and beauty the pendulum tends to swing back and forth and everything kind of come back and repeats itself you know it's it's been really interesting to see how since drybar started you know so many other concepts have have come to life like lash bars and the dry makeup bar bars of. yeah the dry bar of this and that and i and i think it's great because i think what those businesses like drybar are are focusing on one thing and being extraordinarily good at that and i obviously stand very behind that however i do think that i eventually it'll all start to come together again i think that it, i think it could be done in a way it's like when i think back to what i did with my mom as a kid like going into a salon, a salon that that offered a lot of different things you know i i wouldn't wanted to go back to like that particular experience because I think it was too fragmented and nobody was doing a great job at any of it but I do and I think about it like I have this like vision in my mind of like taking the brands like a dry bar or like an olive in June and like all the different you know beauty brands that I love and putting them into one roof where it's you know there is some way to like bring it all back together like a beauty mecca and you know we've done that on somewhat a, a smaller like you know like the Parker Meridian where there's dry bar and there's Blushington and there's there's other beauty concepts opening and you know, we just opened our flagship store in the Nordstrom, the very first Nordstrom in New York City. And there's also Face Gym and I don't know if you've been there yet. It's beautiful. It's, amazing. Amazing. it's gorgeous. You've been? Yes. It's amazing. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's like that I remember walking in there this last week and being like, This is this is amazing and genius. I just wanna spend all of my time here and I you know, I wanna get a blowout and then I wanna do this. And so I, I feel like to me I think it's going to go back to that at some point where it's like all going to come back together somehow.
0: I love it. Michael, anything to add to that?
1: Michael, what's (laughs) happening to business? No, nothing really. I mean, I think that Allie's right. And it's funny because we've been toying around with that. Um, And we're also, we're working on some other, you know, brands in the space and we kind of have that vision that still keeping, you know, a brand that's a, a love brand and that people can really buy into but kind of doing it together and synergistically so I think it's going in that direction as well
0: you know to, who to come talk to when you have that big idea <laughs> <laughs> well, we do yeah you do okay last thing I just want to ask you guys biggest pinch me moment of all of dry bar the moment where you're like wow Gosh, there's been so many
1: I mean yeah I mean well, the big one for me was when we did it was about four or five years ago when we did our first ever, um, sales conference and we'd never gotten everybody in the company in one room. And there was this m- massive, you know, c- conference room and Ali and I, you know, start kicked it off and went out there and just to all these people cheering and so many people and that were so passionate about the brand. And it was, I get chills. I get the chills even just thinking about it. And it, it was cause other than that, you know, there are just kind of numbers on a page and, you know, you visit the stores just one at one at a time, but to see that Massive humanity that something that Allie and I just created from nothing—was a big pinch-me moment for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree with that. And I think it's for you know, for me, I, when I think about you know, to Michael's point, is all the jobs that we've created. I mean, I feel so proud of that—that that we were able to do that. I mean, that's just to me, that's such a feel-good moment for me. But I would say, in terms of a pinch-me moment, which is probably a little more vain than Michael's, <laughs> you can say, <laughs> the bow thing.
1: Oh, what were you gonna? What were you I gonna, didn't say your first magazine cover, but... I was going to say that next. <laughs>
2: um, well, I remember when we only had Brownwood yeah. and we were probably like less than six months in and we got a call that a Vogue editor was coming because someone in New York had, had mentioned Drybar. I just remember thinking like Vogue magazine, things like were the place to go.
1: I think you're going to say our first, when we were in Vogue and we left and we had that big meeting... And then we went and had Fridays oh, afterwards.
2: Yeah. Well, we, that's true. We did have a really big meeting with Vogue, and then we went and ate Fridays. And we were like, you know, you can take the kids out of Florida. But <laughs> um, maybe you should edit that out. I know. Uh, I
0: love that. Don't you dare. That is so good. <laughs> I, I'm i a Florida girl, guys. I love it.
2: I love TGI Fridays. But then, then it was, yes, yeah, certainly being on the cover of a magazine. I was on the cover of Inc., I don't know, eight months ago or something, and it was it was just the most surreal experience to be on the cover of a magazine. A business magazine. Inc. No which less
1: Inc. magazine. Which is this podcast. Yes,
0: being on the cover of Inc., which was phenomenal and you looked gorgeous and your hair looked fabulous. Okay, guys, last question. If you had to talk about one startup that each of you have on your radar that you can pay it forward to and give them some coverage, a startup that you love today.
2: Well, ironically, we just had on our podcast the founder of a company called The Giving Keys, um, which is a, a nonprofit. And it's, it's just basically she's really helping clean up the homelessness in Los Angeles. It's a business where they make these keys and they engra- engrave them with a word like strength, hope, love, and then sell them. But basically homeless people are coming in and making them and getting paid that way. So it's, it's getting homeless people off the street. And I think it's just the greatest
1: business. Yeah, ever. you're gonna get an introduction to that yes, soon.
2: You will be hearing more. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, for me, and it's a little bit self serving because Ali and I are investors, but um, it's a company called Squeeze that our are- Former head of marketing at Drybar is our co-founder on it, and she has done it. the first one just open. It's in the massage space, and we felt and she felt that there was a big hole similar to Drybar, where there wasn't, you know, there was the low-end massage envy at one end, there was the high-end spot at the other end, and there wasn't something in the middle. And it's really a technology company in that she spent a year and a million bucks building the back the platform, which is an app-based booking, just like Postmates didn't change food delivery and Uber didn't change, you know. People getting cars. We just changed the way massages are booked, and it's been open about eight months. The first one in Studio City in California, and they're absolutely crushing it. But more importantly, she's creating such an amazing culture, similar to Drybar, where it is such a feel-good company. The people who work there love it. The employees love it. I think they have n- nothing but five-star reviews on Yelp so far. So. Um, check out Squeeze Massage if you get a chance if you're in California.
0: That's awesome. Guys, I absolutely love every minute I get to spend with you both. Allie and Michael, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you haven't already been to a dry bar, get to one of their 134 stores. You can also go to www.thedrybar.com. And join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you guys so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Alexa. So much fun.
0: Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Ink's The Founder's Project with Alexa Montobel wherever your podcasts are offered.